Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 7. We have graduated to chapter 7 in the book of Mark. And today's sermon is entitled, Lip Service When Worship is Wasted. Lip Service When Worship is Wasted. And it's actually quite sobering to think that we could actually be wasting our time here today. Which in northern Michigan in the summer, that's a pretty foolish thing to do, right? We only get so many beautiful summer days. But it is entirely possible we could be wasting our time. Well, what exactly is lip service? The Britannica Dictionary defines it this way. It says, lip service is support for someone or something that is expressed by someone in words, but that is not shown in that person's actions. It's words without actions, or at least not the right actions. And more importantly, it is without the right heart. So the key verse for today, um, words of Jesus quoting Isaiah the prophet, Mark chapter 7, verse 6 This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They were guilty of lip service, which resulted in wasted worship. So, um, I know you were just standing, and now you're sitting, and now I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the text in Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. It says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you could have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you do. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, um, again, we're so thankful for your word. It is a solid rock upon which we are able to stand in a world that is full of confusion and uncertainty and questions and wonders if there even is something called truth. God, we thank you that we have the truth. And God, we ask that you would humbly help us to align our lives with the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So you may be seated, and today's sermon, again, is about lip service when worship is wasted, and it really breaks down pretty simply into three parts. Lip service is exposed in verses 1 through 5, it is explained in verses 6 through 9, and it is exemplified in verses 10 through 13. So let's look at the first of these, lip service exposed. Let's go back to verse 1 where it says, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now what's the difference between a scribe and a Pharisee? Very simply, scribes were the interpreters of the law. They were the, the scholars who told you what it meant. But then the Pharisees, they saw themselves as the enforcers of the Mosaic law. They were the law police, if you will. And from where are they coming geographically? They're coming from Jerusalem. If we look at our map, it's about 120 miles from Jerusalem to the south to Capernaum in the north where Jesus and his disciples are. And so these these scribes and Pharisees, they've made a great effort and traveled a long, long distance to be with Jesus and his disciples. For what purpose? To check up to check up on this Jesus. Apparently news uh, about the short-term mission trip that the disciples had undertaken um, had even reached Jerusalem. All the news is traveling all over the region, prompting the scribes and the Pharisees to see what all the fuss is about. We move on to verse 2. It says, And they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that are, what's the word? defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, notice that Mark does not call them dirty hands, does he? It's not that they're dirty, but rather they are defiled, which tells us what? It tells us that this had nothing to do with personal hygiene, had nothing to do with their hands being muddy or dirty or gritty or full of germs, but rather this was about spiritual ceremony. You see, for them, it wasn't enough to make your hands physically clean before eating. You also had to perform a certain ritual to make them spiritually clean. Now, we might ask, where did that practice come from? Well, it originated way back in the Old Testament in the instructions that were given to the priests at the tabernacle, way back in Exodus chapter 30. Remember our study of the tabernacle from several years ago? And I remember some of you probably on the front end of that are like, what? What relevancy does that have, and why should we study that? And it keeps coming up over and over, doesn't it? Well, the priests in that day were instructed to wash their hands with water from the bronze laver, making them ceremonially clean before they ministered in the tabernacle. So again, for whom was the rite of purification prescribed? For whom? For the priests. For the priests. But then watch what happens in today's text in verse 3. It says, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly. Well, how did it happen that what was originally prescribed for the priests was now prescribed for all of the Jews? The second half of verse 3 tells us. It says, They were holding to the tradition of the elders. And that's the key to our text today, really. The tradition of the elders. What exactly is that? Here's what happened. In their zeal for people to keep the Mosaic law, the Jewish religious authorities, they they added to it. They added to it many, many rules of application. And in essence, trying to put a fence around the law to make sure that people were always about the business of keeping the law. And so they added as many as 600 extra rules 
to the Mosaic Law. These were largely handed down from the time of the Babylonian exile until they were collected and written down around the end of the second century AD in something called the Talmud. The Talmud. And the Talmud had two parts. First, there was the Mishnah, that collected all of the extra rules. And then there was the Gemara which was commentary. It just kind of expounded on these things. And sadly, what happened was that all of these extra rules that the religious leaders created, they became just as authoritative and binding as Scripture. Actually, to be honest, even more authoritative and binding. Check out these quotes. These are scary. Rabbi Eleazar said, He who expounds the Scriptures in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. Um, In the Mishnah itself, it says, It is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. Anybody see a problem here? Big problem, right? For you see, their tradition had become more authoritative than Scripture. Their tradition had become more authoritative than Scripture's, which exactly is what Jesus is exposing here. Now, church, listen carefully, because we might think, wow, that's crazy, and we would never do that, would we? Well, here's an important point of application for us. We must not allow anything to become more authoritative in our lives than Scripture. We must not allow anything to become more authoritative in our lives than Scripture. And it can sneak in there. We can listen to people, people we respect, people we trust, and what they say, even when it contradicts Scripture, becomes more authoritative in our lives. Um, No person, no preacher, no preacher can be more authoritative in our lives than Scripture. No philosophy, no political party, no personal preference can be allowed to be more authoritative in our lives than Scripture. I I love how our statement of faith as a church reads in the section on the Word of God. It says this, The Bible is the Word of God, fully and equally inspired in the original manuscripts, without error, and written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It has supreme authority in all matters, is relevant for all generations, and is able to be fully understood under the guidance and illumination of the Holy Spirit. All right. If you're new with us, just know that we highly, highly value the Word of God. Now, this obsession of the scribes and the Pharisees with ceremonial washing, it was further illustrated in verse 4. They, they took it to a whole other level when it says, And when they had come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The idea was that, hey... If you uh, go to Aldi to do your shopping, if you were a Jew, it's likely that you might bump into a Gentile, and if you did so, you were considered spiritually unclean, which would necessitate then you having a thorough cleansing. Now again, that's nowhere commanded in Scripture, but only in the tradition of the elders, which prompted the question in verse 5, And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but they eat with defiled hands? So it's evident that this was a hot button. This was a really big deal. This whole hand-washing thing was huge 
for the scribes and the Pharisees. How big? Listen to this. Uh, Rabbi Jose, he said, he sinneth as much as who eateth with unwashed hands as he that lieth with an harlot. Really? That's how seriously they took it. It was even taught that if this ritual washing was not done properly before eating, there would be an evil spirit called Shipta who would come. And I I like this one. There's a story about a rabbi who was imprisoned by the Romans, and he had a daily ration of water. Guess what he did with his daily ration of water? Did he drink it? No, he used it for ceremonial washing. That's just how big a deal this was to the religious leaders of the day. So you get the idea um, that this hand-washing thing was really big for the scribes and Pharisees, even though it was no way commanded in Scripture. So as we explore this topic of lip service, when worship is wasted, we've seen it exposed. Now we're going to see Jesus expound on it or explain it further in verses 6 through 9. Look with me at verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? Hypocrites. Hypocrite is a compound word made up of the Greek prefix hupo, which literally means under, and krino, which means judge. Put it all together, often used in the context of play acting. It's one who judges under the cover of a mask. One who judges under the cover of a mask. Of a mask, as it came to be used with actors in a play. Hypocrites are self righteous religious actors who pretend to be something that they are not. They give lip service, words without action, which in the, this is interesting to me, this kind of hit me this week. In the context of the Gospel of Mark, is a really big deal. Let me take you back for a minute to January 8th when we were early in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we identified this Gospel as what? The show-me gospel. Why? Because in it, um, there's a greater emphasis on the works of Jesus than on the words of Jesus. Why? So that by his works, Jesus proves himself to be authentic and true. He shows himself to be the Christ. But here, what do the Pharisees and the scribes prove themselves to be? Hypocrites. Actors in a religious play who only give lip service. So quite a, quite a contrast between Jesus, the real deal, and those who are not. Titus 1.6 speaks of such people when it says, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Well, how, how's Jesus going to address this hypocrisy? Well, interestingly, he does so with Scripture. Look at the second half of verse 7 as he quotes the prophet Isaiah. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Oh, that, that hits me every time. In vain do they worship me. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. So Jesus takes an extra step, and after exposing them, he explains their lip service, exactly why their worship is wasted, why their activity and what they think is worship is actually in vain. And so, so far we've seen lip service exposed and explained. Now he's going to give a specific example. This one's pretty interesting. Verses 10 through 13, lip service exemplified. Look at verse 10. For Moses said... 
Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Now, that's a very clear, simple command of Scripture, originating from Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. But watch what the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees did with this clear commandment of God. Verse 11, Jesus says, but you say... If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. So let's unpack this a little bit. That that word Corban literally means devoted to God as a gift and set apart for God's use. Corban means devoted to God as a gift and set apart for God's use. So here's what would happen. In a day back then when there was no social security, The responsibility of caring for aging parents fell directly on the children. It was an important component of honoring your father and mother was caring for them in their later years. And as it was then, as it is now, that could be very expensive. And so Jews who were unscrupulous and hypocritical, they they came up with a loophole to get out of that responsibility. They would declare that their material resources, they were Corbin. Which means, again, what? Devoted to God as a gift and set apart for God's use. And so in doing, they could not use those material resources to support their aging parents because, oh no, they're they're gods. Can't touch them. But conveniently, as you could probably expect, those resources never really got around to being released for anything other than self-serving purposes. The New Living Translation, I like the way it reads. It says, But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you, for I have vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. This was a a clear example of how the authority of Scripture had been replaced by the twisted, demonic tradition of man. And yet, they thought they were real worshipers. And the result of this practice was truly tragic. Check this out in verse 13. This ought to get our attention. Jesus says, when you do that, this is what happens. Thus making void the word of God. By your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. The word of God is such a gift to us. Have you ever stopped to just consider the many, many, many blessings that we receive from the word of God? It's our spiritual food, is it not? It nourishes us spiritually. It is our spiritual power. It is our spiritual protection. And it gives us spiritual direction. Anybody need those things? Oh my goodness. We desperately, desperately need spiritual food, spiritual power, spiritual protection, spiritual direction. But here's the thing. When you forfeit the authority of the word, you also forfeit the blessings of the word. When you forfeit the authority of the word, you also forfeit the blessings of the word. And that is exactly what had happened to the scribes and Pharisees as they elevated tradition over the authority of Scripture. They they forfeited the blessings of Scripture, something that none of us can afford to do. We are so desperately in need of God's word and its many blessings. So 
That is the exposition part of the sermon, lip service when worship is wasted. We've seen it exposed, explained, and exemplified. Now let's go to application. Let's finish it out with the question, how should we then live? And it's really simple. Don't be a Pharisee. Don't be a Pharisee. Now what might a Pharisee look like in the 21st century? I was really helped by a commentator, Daniel Aiken. He wrote this. It's a lengthy quote, but I think it hits the nail on the head. It needs to confront each one of us this morning. He says this, let me introduce you to a prospective church member. He will attend every service, including special events. He will go on mission trips with a passion to convert the heathen. He will tithe, he will sing in the choir, read his Bible daily, and memorize scripture. He will be happy to pray and corporate worship. He is thoroughly orthodox in his theology. He is an inerrantist and believes in heaven and hell. He never gets drunk, is not addicted to porn, never uses profanity, is a family man, loves his country fervently, weeps on July 4, and votes the right way. His reputation in the community is stellar. If any man ever earned the right to go to heaven, it is this man. His religion is certainly something to admire. Sadly, this is a man headed for hell. I've just introduced you to a 21st century Pharisee. A Pharisee in the first century was not scorned as a legalist. No, he was looked up to as a model citizen and a person of piety and religion. Unfortunately, Pharisees had, as Paul says, a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Amazingly, we can have a passion for God, yet not know God. We can be deceived, captured, and enslaved by the deadly lure of legalism. Tragically, those who have been raised in the church are the most susceptible to this deception. Our pride in our religious rituals, church practices, and cultural traditions blind us to both our great sinfulness and the great Savior who alone can rescue us from our sin. I think there are three ways that we need to intentionally counteract our tendency to be Pharisees. And number one of them is this. Compare to God's standard, not others. Compare to God's standard, not others. It's so tempting for us to look around at others, at those in the world, and feel like we're not so bad, right? We're certainly better than they are. Surely that counts for something with God, does it not? That's classic Pharisee thinking that feeds our self-righteousness and puts us literally on the path to hell. There's a story in Luke 18.10 that illustrates this. I love this. It's, it's, it's important, I think, for us today. Luke 18.10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Ever watched the evening news and kind of thought that to yourself? I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm better than they are. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Church, which, which man are you? By what standard do you compare yourself? Do you compare it to the holiness of God? as we are meant to, 
in which case we are all nothing more than wretched, wretched sinners. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a... Do you mean that? Or do we compare ourselves to the sinfulness of others, in which case, don't feel so bad. It is only those who compare themselves to the holiness of God who truly recognize their need for a Savior. Which brings us to the second point of application, which is trust in God's grace, not your behavior. Trust in God's grace, not your behavior. When we rightly compare ourselves to God's standard of holiness, we rightly recognize just how wretched we are in our sin, that there's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, to earn our salvation, and that our only hope is the grace of God. Grace given through the shed blood of Jesus Christ as He died on the cross, taking the penalty for our sins. That is our only hope, not our goodness, which the Bible tells us is nothing more than filthy rags. As it says in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And when we come to recognize that our salvation is only by God's grace as a free gift, what's our response? Is it judgment toward others? No. No. It is worship. It is thanksgiving. It is falling on our faces before God and saying, oh, God, thank you. Thank you. Which then leads to application point number three. Don't be a Pharisee. Instead, live by God's word and not by tradition. Live by God's word and not by tradition. As I mentioned earlier, tradition can encompass so many different things for us in this day and age. It could be a person who has more authority in our lives than God's word. It could be a preacher, a philosophy, a political party, a personal preference, anything, anything, anything that we allow to be more authoritative in our lives than Scripture. But just as we learned earlier, when you forfeit the authority of the word, you also forfeit the blessings of the Word. I would just challenge you this morning to ask the question, in what way, is there any way in which you might be living by some sense of tradition that is greater than and more authoritative than God's Word? So, don't be a Pharisee. Instead, compare to God's standard, not others. Trust in God's grace, not your behavior. Live by God's Word and not by tradition. Would you pray with me? Father, I was raised in the church. Many were raised in the church. And perhaps we were even at times raised in churches or in traditions that leaned toward a legalistic bent um, in which we could even come to the conclusion that if we do the right things, if we behave in the right fashion, that we can somehow make ourselves good enough, right enough with God, and we know better. Your Scripture is so clear. God, we are all like that tax collector, condemned, deserving judgment and wrath. God, give us the heart of that tax collector, which simply says, oh God, only by your mercy can I be saved. 
So God, where we have Pharisaic tendencies, God, would you crucify them this morning? May they be killed. May we simply be humble, humble worshipers, so filled with gratitude for Jesus and what you have given to us as a gift of grace. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.